Welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking to members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Professor Heather White, a visiting assistant professor of religion and the director of gender and queer studies at Puget Sound. As always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio here in Tacoma. Here's Professor White. Professor White, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Delighted to have you. What I want to start with first is you are both the director of gender and queer studies and a professor in the religious studies department. Anecdotally, I think those are probably two of the academic departments on campus that are the easiest to misunderstand in terms of what they do and what you learn about if you were to just read the names. Right. Can you help people listening just get an understanding of what it means to be a scholar of those things? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to guess that the thing that people might be confused about initially is they would think that to be to study religion, you would maybe have to be religious yourself. And perhaps they might also, in hearing gender and queer studies, think that the same is true for GQS, that in order to study gender and queer studies, you have to also be queer. Um, and while there are plenty of folks in both of these departments and programs that are themselves religious and are themselves queer. Um, That's hardly the majority. And both of these fields are about studying aspects of human experience um, from the tools that we have um, in that discipline. So you can absolutely study religion without being religious yourself. Um, In fact, there's probably a whole bunch of jokes that we could come up with. (laughs) If we were to think about how that were also true for, you can study literature without being um, an author of literature yourself, for example. Um, So the same is true for both of those, that irrespective of what your identity is, each of these disciplines bring a set of tools for understanding gender, for understanding human experience, for understanding how people make sense of them. I'm I'm now broadly um, Mm -hmm. combining both of them for understanding how people make sense of ritual in their world, um, metaphysics uh, and ideas about God, as well as just all kinds of everyday ways that we could think about religion being something that is important to human experience. Um, Also true about gender and queer studies. Yeah, these are definitely um, fields that are looking at these um, experiences of humans in the world and taking those set of tools to look at them carefully and critically. The other thing that strikes me about being true about both these disciplines is that they're not bounded by time. That this is neither a what is the latest development situation nor a look only at historical developments in these fields, mm-hmm. but that you could mm-hmm. do both, that you could connect historical trends to things happening in the present moment uh, and perhaps should do that in both mm-hmm. of these disciplines. Definitely. Definitely. And both of them, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about both of them is there's definitely questions that are explicitly asked from the present moment. Mm. Um, But at the same time, we're looking at things that could be at any moment in human history. Um, So there's no limit to, in in terms of time or history, in terms of what we're looking at. In fact, some of the most interesting things um, that we're looking at are questions about how our interpretation of the past changes, depending on what set of assumptions about what is true about human nature we're bringing in from the present. Um, so I would use an example from gender and queer studies. Actually, this is a I could use an example that combines them. 
um, because there's all kinds of records, uh, for example, in the history of Christianity of um, individuals who were part of monastic communities, let's say women's religious orders, um, that depending on how you look at nuns in human in uh, the history of Christianity, um, the the question that you might ask would have to be about same-sex desire and um, potential for understanding same-sex sexuality as structuring monastic life. Um, on the other hand, scholars in um, who are informed by critical trans studies are now asking more careful questions about gender to think about how participants in monastic life, for example, might have conceptualized themselves differently in terms of being a man or being a woman or maybe transcending gender altogether. Um, so there's been a number of different ways that questions from the present have really radically transformed assumptions we have about gender and sexuality and religion in the past. And my understanding, I, I warned you before you got started, I'd done a little <laughs> bit of background research, uh, but is that this exact theme is quite germane to your own research also. And the duality between religion and particularly religious history in the United States and our contemporary understandings of sex and sexuality and gender is, is really a focus for you. Right. Oh, yeah. My research is all about how much there is to learn about the, uh, how much there is to learn about queer history by looking at religion. And my focus in particular is on religious communities in the United States. Most of my research has focused on mainline Protestant churches. Those are the ones that tend to have um, old, very steeply buildings on the main street of most small towns or cities, right? If like, if you're, if the church you're passing is on that main street, chances are it's a mainline Protestant church. I have an um, exact mental image of what you're talking about. Yep. So those mainline Protestant churches are pretty amazingly complicated when it comes to their stances on issues of gender and sexuality. And in most cases, it's far more complicated than meets the eye if you're just looking at a surface level um, perception of what's happening with them. And I, I know how um, unfair and probably ubiquitous it is to ask you to sum up years and years of research in a couple of minutes. But in terms of what actually is happening, what the um, outcome is not quite the right word, but the, what's going on there, what's, what's the elevator pitch for what actually mm. is happening when you see the way those two things interact? Sure. Well, one of the short summations that I give of my first book project is to say that mainline Protestant churches and especially the progressive wings of mainline Protestant churches have contributed far more than we realize to the activism and um, politics that has supported LGBT people. Mm. Um, so in almost every city, um, if you were to trace back and find the first LGBT organizations that started in that city, in most places, those organizations started with the support of a progressive Protestant clergy person mm. and their congregation. And that's true of New York. That's true of Seattle. That's true of my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. That is true in almost every city um, and small town in, in the United States. And is that true because religious institutions are often such strong institutions? Or is there something else at work there creating that type of connection and support? It's a bit of both. So, um, so I, I made that statement that in almost every city, 
there was a religious in, uh, institution involved in LGBT politics, if we could back out from that and talk about so many other political movements mm. in our country, that would also be true, right? Mm. That's true of the um, African-American civil rights movement. That's true of, especially now, a lot of the Black Lives Matter organizing. That was true of abolition. That was true in many cases of women's rights. Um, so we say this about these other movements in American history, but it's often really counterintuitive to imagine that LGBT um, activist groups would have that same level of support. Um, and because people assume that LGBT activism has been mostly non-religious, uh, they haven't really investigated those early roots to find that the thing that is true of most political movements in the United States is also true of LGBT political movements. And that's that history of religious groups' support and involvement. I imagine that most people are quite taken aback to hear that. Sure. Yeah. Most people, when they think about religion, the, they think about the most loudest voices <laughs> and um, those loudest voices and those dominant um, sort of the dominant narrative that's getting shaped by those loudest voices tends to be conservative anti-LGBT. Yeah. It so um, it's not surprising that they wouldn't right. expect to see religion in that story. Well, and one of the things that is um, striking to me again about thinking about two disciplines that I would think of as being quite distinct together is that they also both have very different histories in the academy in terms of, I think, of religion as being very closely tied to classical education, particularly Western classical education. I think of gender and queer studies not as something that exists, but as something that is bounded in the academy as a discipline, as a major as something that you can study, as something that's very new. True, entirely true. And in the case of the University of Puget Sound, I am pretty sure that the religion department it may even in the past have been called the theology department, that's often the case, um, probably was founded, started with the founding of the university. Mm -hmm. um, and the gender and queer studies was founded in 1970 and only just this past year, um, became offered, started to be offered as a major. So yes, like the timing in those is really different. Um, I wonder if you can speak to, to that recent evolution of the GQS department at Puget Sound. Why is it now a major? What is different now that GQS is a major in terms of the experience of a student that is interested in the kinds of questions you might ask in that type of scholarly space? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, what is now called the GQS, Gender and Queer Studies, was founded in, 1970s, in the 1970s as women's studies. And in the early 2000s, it became gender studies. And then around, I think the year was 2015, it became gender and queer studies. And um, it has, so this field has evolved over time. And I would say definitely it's, um, it has ramped up and gotten increasing support. Um, there's always been a lot of support from students, but there's been a, a, a particular momentum recently of students who are really invested in the program and particularly invested in the queer studies component of the program um, and have really sought out really actively to have it av available as a major. Um, so part of that is that student investment and that student involvement for students who themselves want to study um, GQS. But I also think it makes a difference for the entire campus to have GQS um, credentialed as a major 
recognized in that way as um, this is a kind of legitimating of the kinds of knowledge and the kind of study that comes out of gender and queer studies. And I think that makes a difference for everyone on campus to have that sort of um, in that list of academic departments and programs that are that offer um, this that offer a major. And I wonder if you could walk me through um, on even a more micro level what that type of experience majoring in GQS is like. Mm. What's the kind of coursework a student might take? What are they um, actually going to be learning by the time that you worked your way through three or four years uh, of this of that coursework? Right. The starting place for most students is in the Introduction to Feminist Gender and Queer Studies. That's GQS 201. And we always have um, seats open for first-year students in particular because it's a really great class for first-year students. And um, we do a lot in that class that is about the, the subject material we teach, but also really carefully and deliberately conscious of how the subject material um, impacts the way that students and professors relate to each other in mm. the classroom um, and how we collectively form a kind of learning community. So we're learning things like um, the history of feminist and LGBT activism, um, and especially the different ways that those activist groups were pushing for change, um, while also figuring out um, different ways of relating to each other as, as an internally diverse movement. So we spend a lot of time investigating those activist projects and the kinds of analysis that come from them. Um, we also take a lot of that, a lot of that, those forms of analysis and turn them around to our own lives. So if we're studying things like masculinity, or if we're studying um, gender and white privilege, or if we're studying something like that huge buzzword intersectionality, <laughs> there's always questions about how does that, how does that also um, affect the way I see myself and the way that I see myself in relationship to the people around me. Um, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like figuring out new tools and using these lenses of analysis um, as ways of thinking about ourselves and thinking about how that shapes our relationship with the, the, the folks in the room and the folks who, the, the rest of our world. And to that point, I wonder if you could, um, Speak a little bit, too, about the experience of somebody who maybe doesn't want to major in GQS, but is interested in taking a class here or a class there. Um, and both somebody who maybe comes in knowing that they're interested and feeling comfortable in those conversations already, equipped for those conversations already. And a student who arrives at Puget Sound who um, is, is well-intentioned, certainly, but has maybe never known somebody in the LGBTQ community or totally. has never been exposed to that kind of vocabulary before and feels like I'm interested in this, I'd like to learn, but are these classes where I'd be welcome mm -hmm. and equipped or where I'd be behind? Oh yeah. So GQS 201, that intro class is definitely a learning space and it's a learning space in every dimension. Like we even have classroom activities where students practice learning how to talk to each other in small groups and make small groups productive. And I want to say, like, everyone has been in that small group where there's awkward silence, where <laughs> one person speaks more than everyone else, where you just don't feel comfortable saying anything, mm -hmm. right? So developing a set of strategies to include everyone in the conversation, that's super useful, both in 
the class that um, you happen to be taking in GQS or, and it's definitely something that translates into every class that students take across the university curriculum. Um, and I also think that it develops a set of um, questions that are useful for every other discipline. So there are students who come in um, who are interested, I mean, maybe their major is exercise science or maybe their major is education or maybe their major is business um, or there's a lot of people who come interested in, in the sciences or perhaps um, interested in, in getting a pre-med degree, right? So that's a pretty broad span of different kinds of majors and different kinds of things to focus on, but all of them connect well to the set of questions and the set of really pragmatic skills that GQS 201 helps to, de helps to develop. What do bakeries, industrial design, waterproof notebook paper, and investment management for cryptocurrencies have to do with each other? Hi, I'm Ryan Del Rosario, Assistant Director of Admission and School of Music Admission Coordinator. All four of the things I listed are businesses that were founded by entrepreneurial Puget Sound alums, and you can find out more at pugetsound.edu stories. Now back to P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. things I want to highlight about um, the sort of, I don't quite want to call them soft skills, but maybe the critical thinking skills mm. that you're gesturing to um, is the, the ways that those are characteristic of learning at a liberal arts institution like Puget but particularly in the humanities and social sciences. Right. I, in, in college, I was a sociology and anthropology major at Puget Sound. And whenever I told people that, and particularly my parents' friends, they would want to like ask me trivia questions about the Kikuyu people in Kenya, right? <laughs> the sort of assumption was that I was learning facts about, I'm going to do air quotes, but about other cultures. And that was my education. And in fact, what felt to me like the thing I took out of my education was that I was phrased questions more thoughtfully. I asked better questions. I could organize my thoughts more effectively. I could put together a more cogent argument I could write in ways that were easier to follow and more sophisticated. And those are the things sort of under the umbrella of mm. that anthropological knowledge that felt like they um, like mattered and that I took with me. Even maybe more than the specifics of the subject matter that I memorized and wrote out on tests. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to sort of the evolution of a student from that perspective and the things that you see people learning and getting better at in your coursework? For sure. That's probably where it's useful to talk about. So 201 is the intro course, the other core component of the GQS, both the minor and the major, um, is two other courses which build on 201. So there is a, um, it's called Genealogies and Theories, and it's Feminist Gender and Queer Theories, that is our 360 course. And then there's a thesis um, requirement that builds on that. And what we do in that theories class is like, it is really all about learning how to ask a question. <laughs> it's learning how to read hard texts and it's learning how to ask a question. And all of those texts are focused on sort of critical analysis of um, gender, race, sexuality, class, um, transnational, identities and transnational connections and how to think about social structures like in this really broad scaled up way right so these 
text are thinking about how societies work in this. I mean, it sometimes feels like almost this cosmically grand way <laughs> and often in pretty dense academic language, not all of them, but some of them. Um, and while not, you know, like figuring out how to read things that are hard isn't the only thing that that class is about, but learning how to do that means you have a really cool superpower <laughs> to be able to work through complicated sentences and figure out what those sentences are about. Are about. Um, and then like the key is really not only learning how to make sense of them, but figuring out how to use them to ask a question. Um, a question about what that text means, about how it connects to another text, a question that can then launch a whole inquiry into something else. Um, so all of that is about training your mind and training your critical thinking skills to, to put together those really challenging ideas and then put together and put them, put them together in creative ways to launch new questions. Um, and it really does feel like a superpower that students are developing through that kind of course. And one of the things that I think is striking about that is it's a superpower that's hard to measure. <laughs> and and is, is even though it's incremental, um, you know, you can't really check off steps on the way to building that skill. And True. One thing I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for is in my job is high school students and their parents who really want to figure out what the plan is, right? I'll do step one and then step two and then step three, and then I'll mm. have these skills or this degree. And that will mean I'll do step four, whether step four is right. graduate school or a job. And I think it is sometimes hard to have confidence, no matter how much you trust the person telling you mm. that, okay, I'll take these classes. I'll build these skills that will matter to me and be useful for me. But when you can't sort of point at them and put them in a box. For sure. Well, and the way learning works is that you gain these set of new perspectives. And then once you have learned them, right, once you have sort of gained these new perspectives, the terrain in front of you looks totally different. Right. You see things that you could not have known in advance. Um, so it becomes possible to chart different routes from that learning process that you wouldn't have been able to envision from the outset. Um, and that's hard to build into a learning curve if you're planning, you know, point A, point B, point C, et cetera. Um, what about transformational learning that really shifts your perspective about the way the world looks? Um, what kinds of new vistas become possible with that transformational kind of perspective, perspective gaining? That's one of the things, actually, and this has been so interesting to me, that's come up probably the most frequently on this podcast, I've been doing this once a week for, gosh, I guess about a year now. So we've done probably somewhere in the vicinity of 50 of these. Almost everybody has said something to the effect of, I came to college thinking I would major in X, and then I took my first class in Y, and I never wanted to do anything but that, right? Hmm. Or I, when I graduated from college, I thought I was going to go to law school, and it turned out I got my first job in publishing, and, and now that's where my career is. Or even faculty members who've said, you know, I thought I was going to be a documentary filmmaker or I, you know, I thought I was going to um, get my degree and go to a think tank. And then I realized <laughs> I really like to teach and that's where I wanted to be. And that experience of sort of reevaluating at all these different spaces feels so universal. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, transformational learning is sort of, I mean, it's, 
it's hard to explain how much um, of my, like, that is something I so actively seek out and wish Mm -hmm. for other people. It is one of the most amazing things about just being a human on this planet is to learn something Mm -hmm. that just radically shifts your awareness of how things work. Um, And that's often uncomfortable, but that, I mean, that is such a amazing gift. And it's one that, um, that I would hope every student has repeatedly in the course of getting a college education. And thinking about kind of learning itself, does your pedagogy or your classroom manner feel different at a place like Puget Sound than at the other institutions where you've taught or that you've been affiliated with, do you think? I would say, I mean, I have all along the way taught at small liberal arts colleges, and that has really been an investment and a focus for me because I believe in the kind of teaching that happens. So um, for better or worse, I have never taught a large mm-hmm. lecture course where I evaluate students by some side of sort of Scantron multiple choice quiz, like mm-hmm. ever. Um, have you TA'd for them? Yeah, good point. Though um, I have TA'd for classes, huge lecture classes that still had small discussion sections. Sure. So there's, there was still that element of the kind of the way that we learn from each other by sure. intentionally sitting down with a small group of people and figuring out stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so I have never, I, there's, there are all kinds of teaching that I haven't done. And I can sound super judgmental about how I feel about it, but the truth is that I have intentionally selected a different kind of learning because it is the kind of thing I believe in. What do you think that these types of institutions allow you to do when you made that calculus and continue to make that calculus? What drives it that you think you couldn't do elsewhere? Mm. Well, one is relationships um, that we, we can't. So there's a part of it that we can't just learn in a vacuum and learning isn't just about the acquisition of facts, um, you know, that you could, that are either true or false, um, that if learning is relational and learning is something that we're figuring out together in a community, that means that it's not only, it's not only sort of what, um, we're trying to learn, but why we're trying to learn it and how it shapes, what we do here going forward, right? How it shapes the way that I see myself, how it shapes um, what I want to continue to do with my life, how it shapes um, the way that I value and work out my relationships with others. So that relational aspect and that emphasis on the why and the how instead of the what is to me really key to that small liberal arts context and the kind of pedagogy that happens there. And is, I imagine if that's sort of the, the, guiding force for you that you seek to structure your individual classes that you teach around those ideas too and around weaving them into coursework also. Definitely, definitely. And um, I mean, in amazing ways that in some ways I'm still, I'm constantly thinking through um, what it is that I'm doing in my courses, how it is that I can I can better, you know, sort of connect to where students are. Um, And how I can be open to the kind of insights they give me Mm. about how to make sense of the material. So there's a real way that I'm aware that I may have this PhD um, that gives me, to some extent, a whole awareness of this content of um, scholarship. Um, But what my PhD actually didn't give me was how to relate to 
a student who is 20 in the year 2021 or whatever, like 18 in the year 2021, and dealing with a set of things that they're making sense of in the world. Um, so in many ways, I'm going to rely on those students to tell me how this set of um, scholarship makes sense and how I can better adapt and connect to where they are and how they're making sense of it. And may maybe even just at the like most basic level, for let's say a high school student who's never been in a college class, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis if they sign up to take a class with you? Right. What, what's going to happen? Well, one thing that's going to happen is practice in talking to other students. And um, I don't say that lightly because like <laughs> one thing that may feel familiar in a classroom is sitting and listening. Hmm. Um, so the, the fact that talking and asking questions with a small group of students is part of what you're doing in a class um, is for many students like really a skill that has to be learned. Um, it's like something to figure out and especially something to figure out because like you're like those five people or eight people or however many people are in that group are all new to you. And mm -hmm. they might be terrifying on some level because you're afraid of how they're going to judge you. <laughs> that is a real thing that students worry about in their it's, classes. It's right? one of the most common questions I get asked and never directly. Right. But people who are thinking students who are thinking about where they want to go to college, a lot of people sidle up to me with. Will I be able to do it? Will everybody else be smarter than me? Will everybody else be cooler than me? Will they all have some sort of magic elixir that lets them connect with each other, whether that's in class or out of class, right? And it, it, it is on almost everybody's mind. Yep. I do joke a lot, especially at the very beginning of the semester, about the feeling when you enter the classroom of like middle school, high school, middle school cafeteria feeling, <laughs> where like everyone else yeah. is sitting at a lunch table like that. So I do things like I assign students to groups mm -hmm. and like there's something that might seem kind of dorky about that. But at the same time, it's super comforting for students who are not sure which group they fit in. And also just because most people don't know yet what group they fit in, fit in with or who they connect with. Um, so having a professor deliberately structure those relationships at first is a really helpful way of, of sort of um, paving the way to finding that learning community. Um, so I'm really aware that there's um, that part of the part of the perspective transformation that takes place in this small liberal arts context is really the kinds of things you learn um, when you're connecting to a group of people that might initially terrify you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like learning how to trust them, learning how to trust yourself, learning how to take risks about what you're trying to make sense of and what doesn't yet make sense. All of those things are part of what will change the way the world looks once you go through that experience. Professor White, we end all of our conversations by asking everybody the same four questions. <laughs> all right. The first question is, what's your favorite place on campus? Favorite place on campus? I think one of the places where I am, I, oh, I know exactly where it is. Um, and I, I walk past, there's sort of a particular route um, that where I'm going back to Wyatt, where you catch a vision of um, Mount Rainier, mm -hmm. just hovering over the campus. And it's especially great in the fall because once the trees start learning, losing their leaves, 
um, you get this, you can see through the trees and through the tree branches to catch this sort of luminous um, vista of Mount Rainier. It's just gorgeous. Question two is, what are you reading right now? Um, I have been trying really hard to read more fiction. And there's a book, I actually brought it here. Um, it's called Marriage of a Thousand Lies by S.J. Sindhu. It's a novel um, about a Sri Lankan, Sri Lankan lesbian in, I think, Boston, um, who's married to a gay man who is also from India. And it's a wild beautiful book that reconfigures Hindu mythology through this queer storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty sweet book. It's a sweet book that's interesting to think about through both uh, lenses of gender and queer studies and religion. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? My house, (laughs) (laughs) which is sad for everyone else, but my spouse is the most amazing cook. Um, So Right now, especially because we're in the midst of the stay at home mm-hmm. um, orders, we have been doing a lot of really amazing eating and super to, lucky. Uh, and to wrap up, tell me what makes Puget Sound special. One of my favorite things I was thinking about that. One of my favorite things about Puget Sound is actually that it is located in Tacoma, mm-hmm. which is such a sweet little city. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I I just feel really lucky. I I feel really lucky to be working at the, in the kind of, in the kind of college campus and the kind of um, college environment that is really my dream, like that small liberal arts um, kind of context while also living in this beautiful little city that's nestled alongside the Puget Sound um, where there's these awesome mountain views and opportunities to do outdoor stuff. So um, I do think that being in Tacoma is a serious, serious asset to the University of Puget Sound. Maybe, I mean, there are certainly things I could emphasize about the university itself, but Tacoma is, um, Tacoma is a sweet spot. And she's really showing off today. It's been just beautiful all week. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. All the trees in bloom. It's really pretty. Professor Heather White, thanks for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful talking with you. Thanks for listening to PS, the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for PS the Puget Sound Podcast.